If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 on page 953 in the Black Pew Bibles. You can find 1 Peter 1. Sermon illustrations are an important part of you understanding Scripture. It's one thing to say what something means. It's another thing for us to linger and meditate and really grasp the meaning of a truth. And that's what I believe sermon illustrations help do. Stories are a great, great way to illustrate a sermon. And I found a story that came to mind in the teaching of Jesus, so who better than the master storyteller himself for an opening story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read it to you. And I think this little story will be capturing all of the things you really need to get 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 to 12. Jesus says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus tells this story in a series of three stories that all make one point. Something was lost. That thing that was lost is found, and there is great rejoicing. Story number one, a sheep was lost, and the shepherd went to go find it. Great rejoicing. Story two, I just read to you. A coin was lost, and the diligent search to find that coin finally gave way to great community-wide celebration that even included the angels in heaven. And in fact, the joy of finding a lost coin, a misplaced cell phone, money in your wallet, your passport, your wallet, you name it. You can picture yourself, can't you? Have you lost something before? And you're flipping and turning couch cushions? Where is it? I need it. And then the joy of finally realizing that your glasses were on your forehead the whole time. Rejoice with me. I found a coin. The point of Jesus' story is rejoice with me. Don't you know that up in heaven the angels have joy because a lost sinner has repented and found salvation? I think if you understand the point of Jesus' story, 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 to 12 will make a lot more sense. So let's read it. But keep this story in mind. I think it will help. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them 
that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the things into which angels long to look. My prayer is that God will take this holy, inspired, and errant word, and he will write its truth on your heart so that you will long like the angels in heaven long. Or to put it in one big idea, the prophets of old and the angels of heaven, they gaze at the glory of the gospel, the gospel that you have. Isn't that powerful? The prophets of old and the angels of heaven, they gaze, they search, they inquire, they want to know about the full glory of the gospel. And you have it. I think that's worth unpacking for a few minutes, don't you? Point one. They gaze. The prophets of old and the angels of heaven gaze. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Key in on the phrase, the prophets. There is a minor debate whether or not these prophets are early Christians. I do not think that's the accurate way to read, who are these prophets? I believe the answer is, the prophets of old. Which is why the big idea says, the prophets of old. The Old Testament prophets, to be more specifically. Isaiah would be a good example. Over and over again, when we read 1 Peter, Peter's going to quote from Isaiah. And he's going to tell you that Isaiah was talking about Jesus. So take Isaiah, for example. Read through Isaiah and realize that Isaiah was predicting about suffering and about glory, and he wasn't just talking about the people of Israel. He was talking about Jesus. But that's not the main thing that we're pointing out in this first point. They gaze, they search, they inquire. Notice the combination of these two words that are put together in the text. They searched and inquired. The word carefully is added because it's emphasizing that these two should be read together and he's repeating himself by using a word that's not used anywhere else. And in fact, there is evidence outside of the New Testament that this word's used to talk about somebody searching for someone lost. Hence, Luke 15, Jesus telling you a story. There's something that's lost, searching, seeking trying to find something. It's so precious and valuable. These prophets knew that there was something that they were communicating and they kept trying to put the pieces together. And they're like that person at the jigsaw puzzle table and they're not leaving. It's dinner time, Phil. Hold on a second. I think I found a piece. Do you know that moment? Have you ever experienced somebody that's just kind of, I'm staring at this. I think I figured it out. That's the image you should get about these prophets. They didn't have all the pieces, but they had enough. And they had some basic themes, suffering and glory, suffering and glory. 
That's what they had. They're trying to figure out the time and the circumstances. Who will be this one that suffers? And what will be his glory? Suffering and glory. Keep those themes in mind. Such an important part, not just for today's sermon. It's so important for the whole book of 1 Peter. And really, I think it's a good summary of the whole gospel. He, he must suffer and then glory. So that's the prophets. They're searching. They're inquiring carefully. Verse 12. Don't you just love this little line at the end? After all that's been said from verse 3 all the way down to verse 12, all one linear thought. This is one big unit, 3 to 12. And then right at the end, tuck this in. Oh, by the way, these things I've been talking about for the last few verses, from verse 3 to verse 12, angels. They bend down. That's the literal translation of long to look. You're supposed to imagine that up in heaven, there's these angelic beings. And they're bending down and they're stooping over a cloud or something. The throne, floor room, and they're looking down on the earth. And they're like, I wonder what's going to happen. Paul? Saul became Paul? What? That's the image. The angels are watching the unfolding power of the gospel unfold. They're gazing. They're bent over. They're interested to find out what's going to happen. Point one. They gaze. The prophets of old and the angels of heaven. They long and gaze and search for the gospel. I think before we talk about the gospel that they're searching for and why they're so interested in it, you should start to be thinking about yourself, shouldn't you? We should be thinking about this church. Do you long to look at Christ? Do you gaze? Or do you just take a quick glance? For many years, all of my life, I've seen pictures of the Grand Canyon. And I've wanted to go. There's been a longing growing in my heart. I want to gaze. I don't want to just look. I want to show up and do the average tourist thing and take a selfie and say, all right, I saw the Grand Canyon. Move on. My wife told me before we went this summer for the very first time as a family to go see the Grand Canyon that that's apparently the average visit at the Grand Canyon. Ten minutes. I didn't want a ten-minute look. I didn't want an Instagram photo. I wanted to gaze. We went there twice on our trip because I wanted to gaze. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Gazing at beauty. Do you have longing in your heart for something that you find beautiful, desirable? Search within your heart. What is it that you long for the most? What do you wake up day after day? And not just in the past, right now. Think of you right now. What gets you up in the morning? Is it money? Is it a pat on the back and the approval of others? Is it a relationship with someone? Is it a better relationship than the one that you have? Longing. Do you have this kind of longing for the person of Jesus Christ? That's the question. While we were in Arizona, we spent time with a family that we quickly hit it off and became good friends. They've lived in Flagstaff, just an hour or so away from the Grand Canyon. And they told us that as a family, They've never gone to visit the Grand Canyon. And then, while we were at church with them, 
Another family told us they go week after week after week. They can never get enough of it. It made me think about the gospel. Some of you are like that first family. You saw it once. You don't even care to take your kids. You're just like, yeah, I saw that. I did that. Really? You live an hour and a half away? People from all over the world. This is one of the tourist spots that people want to come see and just gaze at its beauty and its majesty. Oh, and it pales in comparison to the glories that we're about to see in 1 Peter. Brother or sister, be like the second family. We, we go like every other weekend. We like to go at wintertime and see snow in the Grand Canyon. We like to go at the morning sunrise and see the Grand Canyon. We like to go in the evening and see the sunset. We go and we go again and again. Embassy, that's us. Let's be that kind of family as a church. Did we sing the gospel song too many times a day? Or was it just enough to keep saying, holy God in love became a perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin and by his death, I live again. Let's sing it again. Let's sing it again. Let's sing the gospel. Let's glory and gaze in the gospel, in the songs we sing, in the sermons that we preach. Have you noticed, for those of you that have been around for nine plus years, I haven't moved on. I'm kind of stuck. And I want you to pray that I never, ever, ever get stuck preaching the gospel. Or, sorry, be more precise. I never want to move on. I stay stuck. This is a good thing to be stuck on. It's nourishment for your soul, as we're about to read in the end of 1 Peter chapter 1 and into chapter 2. It's like craving like an infant baby, newborn, wanting the milk of the word, tasting and seeing that it's good, hungering for not just the word, but the word made flesh in the person of Christ. That's what they long to look. The angels of old, the angels in heaven, and the, the prophets of old. I think that the point should be clear. Peter is not even commanding you to long. He's just telling you all the other people that have been throughout cosmic history. Not just even people on earth. Prophets of old have gazed and wondered and searched and spent their whole lives trying to see what you already have. But how many of you? Yeah, I've seen that. Can we talk about something else? Do I really need to go to church each week and rehearse the gospel? Didn't we take the Lord's Supper last week? Brothers and sisters, I hope that the force of what Peter's saying lands the way it should. Do you realize what you have? Gaze at it. Sit. Have long walks, long talks, long sessions of just wondering at the amazement of the cross. Can you sing that song still? Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I, present tense now, stand amazed, wondering how he could love a sinner like me. Point two. They gaze at the glories of the gospel. What's so great about the gospel that it's worthy of all of this gazing? Seven reasons for gazing. I'm going to give them very quick. This is a kind of sermon where I want you to get the main takeaway. Gaze. 
Realize what you have and gaze at it. That's the takeaway. But I think before we move on and call it a day, we've got some excellent reasons for you to take these seven points and do some gazing. So here you go. What are the glories of the gospel just from our passage? Seven of them. Number one. Gaze at the glory of the gospel that saves sinners. In verse 10, notice the way our passage begins. Concerning this salvation. The entire thing is introduced with the word salvation. We're talking about saving. Saving sinners. Notice the way that this word is a repetition of what we saw in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. Or, again, in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith concerning the salvation of your souls. Now, concerning this salvation. Do you see the point? This flows right from what we've been talking about the last few weeks. It's about being saved. And on this point, Sibs, in the first song we sang to start our worship service, gets it right. Sibs writes, Jesus Christ is more ready to forgive than you are to sin right now. There is in him a continual spring of mercy in Christ that is much more than the spring of wickedness in you. Do you believe that? This salvation is in accordance with God's great mercy, as verse 3 says. His mercy is more ready to forgive than you are to sin right now. This mercy makes you born again and makes you a new person and gives you a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, an inheritance that you can never, ever, ever lose, kept by the power of God producing a joy even in the midst of various trials and creating love for Jesus and faith and trust in him. That's salvation. Point two, gaze at the glory of this great news, the gospel, because it is a message of grace. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace, charis, the gift, the message of the prophets Even though there's judgment and there's warnings and there's commands, here Peter summarizes the message of the prophets as grace. Do you believe that? That the Old Testament prophets preached grace, prophesied about grace, that the message and and summary of all of the gospel, you could sum it up in one word, it's grace. Do you glory in his grace, in his abundant generosity? Or do you think God's holding out on you, stingy, Gives to others good gifts, but not you. If you gaze at the gospel, you realize he gave that gift to the whole world. He's not holding out on me. He's giving me the best possible gift that there could be. Point three, gaze at the glory of the gospel because it was predicted by the prophets, as you see quite clearly in verses 10 and 11. They searched and inquired carefully, verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Notice that there's no quotation of a specific prophet. I believe this is a summary statement about all the prophets. That the prophets preached there would be suffering for sin and there would be glory 
for the one who would take on that sin as a suffering servant in the place of the sinners, dying on a cross. That through his wounds you would be healed. He bore our sins on a tree. This is exactly what we find in 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn your Bibles and notice the way that Isaiah is quoted explicitly. Starting in verse 23 of chapter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And here's the quote from Isaiah 53. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Isaiah 53 is just one of many examples that Peter himself used or the New Testament of predicting suffering that would then lead to glory. So read Isaiah 53 in its fullness and see that this is glorious. It was predicted 500 plus years ago that Jesus would die on a cross for your sins and you would receive healing through the power of his new life, through the resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit that gives you a born-again heart, new desires, new longings to gaze. So do it. May that new heart lead you to gaze at the glories of the predicted prophecies throughout the Old Testament about suffering and glory. Point four. Point four is a doozy. Put your seatbelt on. Gaze at the glory of the gospel that Jesus Christ's spirit was in those prophets who predicted the gospel. Chew on that. I'll say it again. Gaze at the glory of the gospel that Jesus Christ's spirit was inside the prophets when they predicted his suffering and his glory 500 years before he even came into existence on the earth. Meaning, he was alive in some kind of pre-incarnate existence. Jesus did not become born into existence. He became a human after being an existed spirit in heaven for eternity. This is called the deity and divinity and eternality of the Son of God who then took on flesh and suffered and raised to glory. Did you know that the Bible teaches that? The Son of God was not the firstborn of creation, meaning he was the first thing to be created by the Father. That is not what the scriptures teach. It means that he has preeminent, preeminent place as the Son of God. Not that he was created. He is the uncreated spirit of the second person of the eternal triune God. All big fancy words, but I asked you to chew on this, so do it. Think about it. Jesus did not become a person. He became human. He already was a person. And his spirit was in the prophets. Read the passage carefully in verse 11. Inquiring what person or time, the spirit of Christ, and then here's the phrase, in them, the spirit of Christ that was in them, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, and the subsequent glories. If you drop your eyes down to 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll notice that at the end of this chapter, starting in verse 17, there's an explanation about 
pre-existence. And specifically, look at verse 20. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Much more needs and should be said on the pre-existent glory of the Son of God. But we're moving on to point five. Gazing at the glory, you should gaze at the glory of the good news of the gospel because after the many sufferings that Christ would experience, there would be, verse 11, many glories, plural. Many glories. Many sufferings, many glories. What are the many glories? I believe that those glories include, but not limited to, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the glorious resurrection, the glorious ascension of Christ into heaven, the glorious session at the Father's right hand as our intercessor, the glory of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and fifth and finally, as we will conclude this sermon, the glory of you coming to faith in Jesus. And so, so much more. Have you marveled at each of those glories? Many sufferings produced many glories. Point six. Reason number six. You should gaze at the glory of the good news of the gospel because the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven to empower gospel preachers to save you. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets of old, that they were serving not themselves, but they were serving you. And in these things that have now, in the present day, been announced to you through those preachers of the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And these are the things that angels long to look. Do you gaze at the, the power of the Holy Spirit to take the simple words of a man or a woman and empower them and your whole life's different now? Is that worthy of gazing at? Let me give you another question. Do you ever gaze and long and, and glory in the idea that you're a Christian in this room right now, for many of you that are, because God sent someone to tell you the good news? I have a brother-in-law. He, almost every time I hear him praise, prays like this, Father, I want to thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you for the people that you used to tell me the gospel. Listening to him pray has revealed to me year after year the glory that there is in you meditating on the power of the Spirit coming into an ordinary, average guy like me, Phil, your pastor, and using the preaching of the good news to change your life, make you born again. For some of you, you're in this room because you heard me announce that gospel. Isn't that amazing? We've baptized people year after year because they hear the gospel at embassy. And it's not just some guy sitting up here talking and giving you advice. He's declaring to you week after week, whoever the preacher is here at embassy, news. And that changes people. It's glorious. Point seven. 
gaze at the glory of the gospel that all of God's word, Old and New Testament, is for you. Not just relevant or applicable, like literally this text says, it's for you. Read the entire passage again and notice the emphasis on you. Ready? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be, say it with me, yours. Say it with me, yours. The prophets of old prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to those Old Testament prophets that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This is breathtaking. Your Bible is not 27 books long. It's 66. Your Bible. It's comprised of Old and New Testament. And you can read Leviticus 19 and the the commandment to be holy as I am holy and that not just apply to Israel. That's for you, Embassy Church. You can read Psalm 33 and Psalm 34 and Psalm 22, as Amber read earlier, and you can realize, that's for you. That's not just for Israel. That's for us. That's glorious. That's what he's saying in this passage. It was revealed that they weren't even just talking about themselves or their own individual community. They were talking about something that was so far in advance that it was, it was something they would gaze at. I wonder... There's your seven reasons. You want them again real quick? First, you should gaze at the gospel because it saves sinners. Second, gaze at the gospel because it's about grace. Third, gaze at the gospel because it was predicted by the prophets and it came true. Fourth, gaze at the gospel because Jesus' spirit was in the prophets. The pre-existent person was in the prophets. Five, gaze at the gospel because after the many sufferings of Christ, there were many glories. Six, gaze at the gospel because the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven and empowered regular, ordinary men and women to preach the gospel, and it saved you. Seven, gaze at the gospel in the Old Testament, too, because all Old and New Testament, all the Bible, Old and New Testament, it's for you. So let's conclude. The big idea of this message in one simple sentence. The prophets of old and the angels of heaven gaze at the glories of the gospel that you've been given. Point three, that you've been given. First, if you're here today and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, God wants to give you a gift. The gift is a gift of grace. Forgiveness of sins. Salvation of your soul. Do you know that you need saving? You do. This is a gift. Well, I don't feel like I need saving. Well, just because you don't feel like you need saved doesn't mean that you don't. If there's a meteor from the outer space that's coming and crashing down, 
just on our community right now. Well, I don't feel like I should move. You should. So first, know yourself to need saving. Second, some of you have been saved. I think as I look around, most of you have been saved. Praise God. You still need saving today by the gospel. Not like you need to get rebaptized again. You need saved by continuing to put your trust and your love in Jesus, as verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter say. Notice that it says that right now, at the end of verse 9, you're obtaining your salvation. Already now, your faith and your love in Jesus is the obtaining of salvation week after week and day by day. You need saved again today. You need saved from sin that's tempting you. What if, right now, this message encourages you with longing and love for Jesus that tomorrow you don't do the thing you were thinking about doing? He saves today. What if he saves you tomorrow because a Christian in this church texts you and says, how are you doing? I'm praying for you. And you were thinking about doing something sinful and foolish. And that reminded you of the preciousness of Jesus that's right in your lap. You have it. Oh, yeah. I shouldn't squander this gift. It's really good. Do you need saved like that? Answer, even if you don't feel like it, you do. So I would like all of us in this room to be the kind of community that we encourage one another with the gift that we already have. The gift that the angels in heaven don't have. All throughout the New Testament. There's these little tidbits that try and help make the point that in the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, don't you realize that you will be above angels because you're a co-heir with the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and that you're going to judge angels? You're better than angels because of your union with Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 says, now to which of the angels did God ever say, this is my son? But to Jesus Christ he did. And then in verse 13, Hebrews 1.13 says, And those messengers from heaven were meant to serve God's elect. That's the people of 1 Peter. The elect. The elect exiles. The angels are our servants. And they don't have salvation. If an angel falls from heaven, if an angel rebels against God, there is no salvation for angels. But whether you are a hardened, skeptic, doubter, or a believer in Jesus, whether you're struggling or you're excited and longing, you have the opportunity to have this gift and to gaze at it every single second of the day. Do you know how good you have it? Like, really, do you? I think the only way you will is if you gaze. Join the angels in heaven, rejoicing when one sinner repents and long for the day for the return of Jesus. Like the prophets of old were longing and searching, when's it going to happen? Let's long and gaze. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you.
even though the words thank you seem trite relative to the thing we're thanking you for. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the person that did suffer on a cross and die in our place. Thank you for the glorious resurrection that gives us a living hope. Thank you for his amazing ascension into heaven and the outpouring of the Spirit and the beautiful feet that were filled with the Holy Spirit and preached us the gospel. God, thank you for my mom who preached the gospel to me. Thank you for my dad. I pray that each of us would have such humility to thank you today for the people that preached the gospel and led them to faith in Christ. Lord, I also want to ask that we would realize the necessity of suffering. Oh God, would you give us boldness and courage and perseverance that the various trials that we considered last week are necessary because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. That we wouldn't think it's strange when suffering comes and that we would remember after the suffering comes all kinds of glories. Oh God, give us such courage and boldness to keep persevering and not give up doing good. And most of all, would you teach us what it looks like in a digitally distracted modern age to not just take a snap at the cross, a quick photo, but gaze. Not just for one day or one week, but for a lifetime. Would you put within us a hunger for the gospel and the glories of Christ? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.